Welcome back. Uh, I'm really excited for you guys to hear this interview today. It's with David Lombardi. Uh, he's a journalist for The Athletic. He covers mainly the 49ers and some other Bay Area sports. Um, for those of you that don't know what The Athletic is, it's basically uh, a sports journalism website. And all the stories are longer form and it's subscription based, which kind of goes against the model that uh, people have tended to see for the last decade or so. So I asked David some great questions about why he thinks the subscription based model is working so well, as well as some of his favorite stories to cover. Um, this interview took place in the middle of the football season when the 49ers were still undefeated right before they lost their first game of the season. So uh, David was pretty fired up. I was pretty excited being from the Bay Area myself. Um, can't wait for you guys to give this one a listen. Hey, everybody, and welcome back. I'm here today with athletic uh, reporter, journal, or does journalism, uh, works with mainly the 49ers, uh, covers some other Bay Area football as well, but I'm here with David Lombardi. Uh, how's the day going? Oh, it's going good. Got up a little early. I, I have to head down to Santa Clara in a little bit. You talk about the 49ers. It's been, it's been so busy. They're undefeated right now. Yep. And uh, you kind of have to stack everything together during football season, as you, as you know well. So it's, it's been going great, but this is my favorite time of the year. Yeah. Um, so how did you feel going into the season? Like, were you expecting this at all as someone who covered them you know, through the whole offseason, through uh, their training camp? Were you, were you, did you see this coming? Well, so I've been covering them since 2017, which was a cool time for me to come aboard because that's when Kyle Shanahan, sure. John Lynch, and the whole new staff came aboard. And in the NFL, it's usually a total clean out when, when a new staff comes aboard, especially when a team was as bad as the 49ers were before 2017. So I got to really trace and, and examine and analyze the whole building process to see where this was going. And uh, no, I don't think anybody saw 8-0, but... I'm on the record many times. If you go back, you know that's the beauty of the written word. You could yeah. you could see, you know what was said, and you get roasted if you're wrong. But I'm on the on the record saying this was a playoff team if they stayed healthy. Now where I've been wrong is that they haven't stayed all that healthy, and they're still undefeated. Yeah. And that that's really a testament to what they've built there. This really adaptable team, you know, really new age stuff happening there. And I think Kyle Shanahan's one of those young coaches on the cutting edge. So. Um, you know, I was, I was right and I was wrong at the same time because I don't think anybody saw this good overcoming losses of, of both of your guys, both tackles. They, they've been playing yeah. without both starting tackles for a few weeks now. Incredible. And they're still winning. Yeah. And I don't know. I, I think it's pretty interesting to watch the whole buildup too. My first year, uh, after my first season here at Cal, um, our head coach back then uh, was fired and it's been different to be able to see what it's like to be in a program that had someone who was there for a couple of years versus how, like you said, it's, you know, the house gets like everybody gets cleared out. They bring in a bunch of new guys and it's, it's cool to see and be a part of a process of building something back up. Um, so what, what's your, what was your relationship to the 49ers prior to covering them? Well, I grew up in central California in a town called Visalia, a little bit south of Fresno. I'm sure you guys have some, some players on your team from the Central Valley. Mm -hmm. 
most famously probably in the NFL, Colin Kaepernick recently from Turlock, which was a, a couple hours north of me. Anyway, that whole Central Valley area, especially when I was growing up since the Rams abandoned L.A., uh, was was 49ers territory, and and that the dynastic 49ers were were everything to people there. I mean, you'd have Raiders fans too, but the, but the 49ers carried the day in the 80s and the 90s, and I think the Raiders carried more of the day earlier on. But I was born in '88, grew up in the '90s, watching Steve Young, and um, you know the 49ers were a team that I knew a whole heck of a lot about. So when I got the lucky break to to be able to cover the 49ers, it was natural segue for me especially for the athletic because we're not just writing game recaps we're, we're delving into the nitty-gritty and, and especially the history and when you're yeah. dealing with the 49ers who in a lot of ways are like the new york yankees of football right with that illustrious history the way they revolutionized the game in the 80s with bill walsh the history means a lot so to to already have that prior connection because i had followed that team so religiously growing up that that really helped me I think, uh, especially when the Niners were bad in the first couple of years in the job, because fans don't want to hear about the game when the team's 0-9. Fans would rather be nostalgic, you know, yeah. hear about the good times and what they may be building. And Kyle Shanahan, actually, you know, he's an indirect descendant of that Bill Walsh coaching tree. So um, it's all kind of come full circle for them. Yeah, that's super cool. And it's, I mean, it's so cool that you were able to grow up watching that and now in your own way be a part of it. Um, so what about the game of football itself or sports themselves? How did you decide that and I how did you decide that you wanted to be part of it in the way that you are now and, and cover the sports and follow them so closely? So ever since I was young and you have to talk to my parents about this, but they tell me they swear that they would have trouble because I it would be four or five years old, and they couldn't get me to sleep because I'd be laying down announcing imaginary baseball or football games. <laughs> I always wanted to do play-by-play, -play and, 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 and my mom would come into the room, and she'd be like, you have to stop doing this. you got to go to bed. But I would be so fixated in my own head about this imaginary you know, San Francisco Giants or 49ers game that I was announcing. So play-by-play -play was always something... I think I dreamed of doing, I wanted to do, but I never knew how. I never knew how to get from point A to point B. I showed up at Stanford and my initial plan was, was to walk on the swim team because I was a swimmer. My mom never let me play football. She's a pediatrician and you know, sure. she, yeah. she, she's worried about those risks, but I, I loved football. Football was always, that and basketball was at the top of the pecking order. But uh, when I got to Stanford, I, you know, within a couple weeks, my roommate came up to me and said, hey, I heard about this awesome extracurricular activity, this club, it's the student radio station. And they literally travel and they you know, announce games. Like they actually do play-by-play -play for basketball and, and, and uh, football. I don't know if I should mention what school I went to, but it was at Stanford. And that's when, the, that's when the really lucky break came because I decided to do this and I did a few softball games, smaller sports you know, less of the revenue sports and, and, and they liked my work. So they gave me the option my sophomore year heading into the, my sophomore year of uh, coming on as the second, you know, color commentator for either basketball or football. At the time, Stanford was good at basketball and they were terrible at football. This is in coming off their one and 11 season in 2006. Okay. But they had just hired a guy named Jim Harbaugh. And for some reason, you know, football always called to me a little bit more in basketball. And I picked football, even though 
all other student broadcasters were fighting for the basketball spot. Maybe that's why I picked it. I don't know, but but the the the, the football spot was was what I felt like doing, even though that the year before you wouldn't have wanted to cover that that team, empty stadiums. You know, they're punting on third down in 06, my freshman year. Uh, and I show up in my very first road game, the first game that I traveled to and was the announcer for was quite literally the biggest upset in, in college football history. Stanford beat USC. It was number two in the country. They're 41-point underdogs. And a point wow. spread that big yeah. had never been overcome, and they won 24-23. to 23. Richard Sherman was a player, made a key play for Stanford as a wide receiver, and now I'm working with him as a cornerback for the 49ers. So everything kind of came full circle, but that's how it started. It was a lucky break, and, and I was able to start putting stuff on, on film. Yeah, it's also cool. That, I mean, you watched Harbaugh build that program up into something, and then you know he went and did the same thing with the Niners where you are now. There's just so many connections between all of it. Yeah. Um, what do you see as someone who watched Harbaugh build up Stanford – and someone who's now watching uh, Shanahan with the 49ers, what, what similarities do you see between those guys? <laughs> that, that, that's a really good question. Actually, one that's uh, never been posed to me. Uh, two obviously very, very different guys, but um, they've gone about some things in really similar ways. And I think there's only one real good method to building an effective organization and that's you have to hire good people you you have to have quality assistance and that's something that harbaugh was really good at um i could only speak for his time at stanford and then with the 49ers after because i watched that pretty closely but you know a lot of people criticize jim harbaugh for uh coaching a little too much with his heart instead of his brain and and, and so sometimes that came back to to bite the 49ers when he you know and stanford too he'd often play vicariously through through his quarterback and sure. he saw it cost him in the Super Bowl when he wouldn't give it to Frank Gore actually the last time Cal beat Stanford in in 09 uh, Stanford was driving down the field chance to win the game I was actually announcing that game as a senior and instead of giving it to Toby Gerhardt who should have won the Heisman that year freshman Andrew Luck threw through an interception at the goal line and when we saw the similar thing repeat itself in the Super Bowl so that was the criticism of Harbaugh it sunk him a few times but he was mainly able to extricate himself from, you know, that emotional connection that he has to the game as a former player, former quarterback, mm -hmm. by surrounding himself with a grade A staff. And and I think that Shanahan has done the same thing. And, you know, a lot of the guys aren't known. He didn't hire Wade Phillips to be his defensive coordinator. He hired Robert Sala, who nobody had ever heard of. But now you're seeing why. Yeah. You know, he he's, he's getting young cutting-edge minds. So whereas Harbaugh brought aboard Vic Fangio, a you know, more experienced guy who everybody knew about to be his defensive coordinator, uh, Shanahan is, is working with guys you might not have heard of, but the parallels are still there. It's still, they still know how to select a quality staff that's going to fit very well with, with what they're doing. So although the personalities may be totally different, Harbaugh would just stonewall the media, would never say anything, be paranoid. Shanahan is an open book, which is awesome. So writers love that. Yep. Although all those things are different, the one common link that's the most important, surrounding yourself with quality people, is, is the same in both situations. Yeah, and you mentioned how uh, vital that is for organizational success. And I want to kind of segue into the organization you work for, which is The Athletic. And you mentioned earlier how you guys do – uh, different stories than like some of that really quick, you know, here are the facts journalism. You guys dive 
really deep into different athletes or different histories or stories surrounding uh, teams or universities. And um, I, I mean, I've, all the articles I've read from you guys have been absolutely awesome. I know you guys have a great piece. I don't remember who wrote it on one of the players here, Ashton Davis, one of our yeah. safeties, and his story surrounding, you know, just getting to the place that he is now. Um, so I was wondering if you could talk, and, and I know initially when, when The Athletic was first starting up, people were a little bit skeptical of, of if it would be able to be successful um, because it's different than that, you know, free, free journalism, free stories. It's subscription-based, and it's not – I mean, it's not crazy expensive, but it's, it's not instantly accessible. But despite that, due to the, the quality of the content you guys have been putting out, uh, I think I saw something over the summer. You guys are now at over half a million subscribers. Is, is that we're? I think we're at six hundred thousand now. Yeah. So yeah, it was very quick. We got to the five hundred thousand, and you know, it's almost an exponential path. And you know, I, I think we came at at exactly the right time entering this type of subscription model because you know there were pioneers ahead of us that um, really helped pave the way for what's possible now as far as consumers willing to pay a few dollars a month for something good. You look at Netflix, mm -hmm. you know, you look at Spotify. These are all subscription services that 10, 15 years ago, people wouldn't have been willing to pay for, right? But, you know, now the mentality is changing. Instead of one big bundled cable TV package, people are cutting that cord and people are starting to buy specifically. They're starting to buy... You know, I want this channel or I want this product for $5 a month instead of spending $80 a month for 130 channels I don't watch. And, you know, that's all related to what The Athletic is doing because we are a very specialized, high-quality um, publication focusing on sports writing. So, you know, people looking for that one thing, high-quality sports writing, are, are, are more inclined now to pay a few dollars a month because they're already paying the few dollars for Netflix. They're already used to having to shell out that money. Whereas, you know, over a decade ago, I think people were much more suspicious of, of something like that. So the consumer has to be in the right mentality. And then two, there has to be, you know, a, a lack of good sports writing without, without uh, banners and clickbait and ads popping up at you mm -hmm. uh, for, for us to fit into. And, and there was that because the internet had, you know, all these companies were laying, I was laid off by ESPN. I worked for ESPN for three years before this job. I was one of the, you know, 200 people, 200 reporters laid off one day. You, you saw this, the free journalism model just axing everybody, moving to more and more of a clickbait model. And, uh, you know, there was just this general, I think, discontent among sports fans. Like, well, I, I can't get any really good information like the old days when, when there was high-quality magazine writing. You know, Sports Illustrated is, yeah. is, is kind of circling down the drain now, too. So the athletic came in at the right time for both of those factors. You know, we came in when people were willing to spend, and we came in when people wanted to spend on sports coverage without ads because uh, that had eroded over several years and, and the timing was just right. That's, yeah, I mean, it's interesting to think about that uh, as it coincides with the other paid media subscriptions. I I'd never really thought about it that way, but it, it does make a lot of sense. 
Yeah, no, it, it was that if you look at a lot of the other ones, the, the now there's going to be ones following us, right? Yeah, that's mm. it's always it's a copycat world. If something works, then somebody else is going to get in the game. But I think it was very uh, fortunate for the athletic to hit at just the right time, and you know you have to credit our our co-founders for that because. Uh, they, they they saw the opening. You know, it's like a it's like a running play. Uh, it, you you open up a hole, but it's not going to be there forever. You have to right. hit that hole when it's open. And I think that we hit the hole when it's open. And you know, other people are going to try to find their own hole or try to fit through the same hole. But we've already gotten to the second level now, so we're ahead in that game. Um, so I think that's there's something to be said about that. And uh, th- there's also something to be said about the whole no ad thing. You know, you go to the athletics. Uh, app and you know it's just clean as you know and i think people really appreciate that because we were zagging when other people were zigging um and and now everybody's going to try to zag too and that's when you have to adapt and continue to stay on top of your game because people are going to try to catch you so that's what that's where we're at right now so you mentioned that a lot of uh journalists sports journalists had been getting laid off by the free clickbait model and a lot of those people are now with you at The Athletic. Um, what can you say about the, the quality of people and journalists you've gotten to work with uh, being part of The Athletic? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's probably one of the most awesome parts, right? You're literally next to an all-star team. I mean, we, we build ourselves as an all-star team of writers. I think that's one of the advertising promotional things. Sure. And, um, you know, like I almost, I don't feel I fit in like, cause I'm sitting there and Ken, you know, Ken Rosenthal's on, you know, what Slack is the, the, yeah, yeah. yeah the, the little messaging between all your, your coworkers. And, you know, you could drop a line to Ken Rosenthal or, you know, whoever you want at, 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 at any given time. And, you know, Mike Sando's great. He covers the NFC West and they'll help you with some stats or numbers or you, you're just, you're on the same team as all these huge names and you know, our co-founders made it a point to bring in the very best talent i'm happy they also decided to take a chance on some younger guys mm-hmm. and and i think that's it's just like a football team yeah. right you 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 sign your high-priced veterans but if you have a team of only high-priced veterans in the nfl um it's probably not going to make the playoffs you also have to have those glue guys you have to have that youth that and you mix it all together and that makes an effective organization so you talk about building organizations well i think they've done a good job by pairing people like me with you know these real all-stars these guys who have done this for decades and that allows me to develop um i could you know get feedback and use them as examples, use, as, use them as an inspiration. I do better product. And, and I think that hopefully the younger people too can invigorate some of the people been doing it for a long time, maybe a little bit more jaded, right? And, and I think that's why everybody at The Athletic is so excited about the product because of the team. Two questions about The Athletic in terms of content. One, what's the favorite story that you've ever read on there that one of your uh, you know, coworkers has written? And what's your favorite story that you've ever gotten to write? So early on, this was a piece that really gave us some credibility um, and, and allowed us to take off. It was within the first month or two of the Athletic Bay Area's launch in 2017. So that's already over two years ago now. Marcus Thompson, who's one of our columnists, one of our lead guys, writes mainly on the Warriors, but he's doing everything. He wrote on the Raiders last night. He actually got to go with the Warriors to San Quentin, the state prison. Mm, yep. um, and they, they play basketball there every year. The Warriors bring a, 
a delegation of their front office guys. Bob Myers, the Warriors GM, is actually a, I think he played at UCLA. So he, he's a really good player. And um, they play what's usually a very tightly contested game against the San Quentin inmates who have a team. And Marcus Thompson wrote maybe a four or 5,000 word story about this experience going uh, to, to this prison. But he didn't only write about the basketball game. He also started you know, talking to some inmates, talking to, to you know, the people from the Warriors who were there. And it went off in several different directions you know, with all these backstories of you know, how these guys got there and you know, what they were trying to do to um, you know, make amends for, for whatever crimes they had committed. And I mean, it just ended up being this beautiful masterpiece of something that obviously involves sports, but was much bigger than sports. And it, it was awesome. And I thought that was exactly what our company mission was. You know, we were in a few years and maybe even now a computer is going to be able to write a game recap. Right. Sure. <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah. it's it's not that hard. To, I think you see it on sites like Max Preps already now, too. You know, you go there and, and some random high school game, it gets <laughs> the stats and it prints out, you know. So so you have to find a way to make yourself more valuable than a computer these days, you know, as um, you know, terse as that sounds. But uh, it, it, I think that's part of what the athletic wants to bring to the table. We want to go that extra mile. And I thought this story uh, about the you know the humanity and about the emotions and you know the despair and everything that goes with prison and then having basketball come into there the juxtaposition of you know the Golden State Warriors and San Quentin State Prison coming together I thought it was awesome so that was my favorite one ever written um, by someone else the favorite one I've gotten to work on I mean th there's been so many from a personal level. Um, you know, it's just fun when you have free reign. So that's why I say I've had so so many favorite stories because I'm not really assigned to write anything. It's it's awesome. I pick something, I get in the locker room, and I can run with it. Uh, so I got in the write a lot of cool ones about the 49ers history and Steve Young, Jerry Rice, and sure. connecting with all these yeah. guys has been cool. But uh, very ironically, uh, my favorite story has been a hockey story. Really? And I didn't even know anything about hockey up until last year. But what... I'm half Czech. I have two passports. So my mom was born in the Czech Republic. She was born in Prague. And um, my, uh, you know, so the entire half of my family is, is from there. I was born in America. But it, 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 it's unbelievable what hockey means to that country. I mean, you, you think of American patriotism behind a certain sport you know think of the miracle on ice in 1980 it's it's still considered you know um one of those great nationalistic moments for america in the sporting sphere well take that and multiply it by 50 and that's that's what the importance of hockey in the czech republic and then previously in czechoslovakia was during the cold war because they were occupied by russia there, the Czech, Czechoslovakia is a country of just over 10 million people. So they had no you know, actual hope of winning a fight or winning their freedom while they were behind the Iron Curtain. But the one way that they were able to fight back was through hockey because they had amazing hockey teams that, that were, you know, along with Canada, the U.S., and Russia, they were the big four in the world hockey-wise. Right. So the, the history is absolutely gripping from the fact that there was a – Czech team that 
was arrested like an entire they were gold medalists of the world championships they come home and the communist government arrested them and they had to go work in like uranium mines or you know and, and they lost an entire generation of hockey to Yarmir Yager who was the very first whose grandfather was was uh, jailed and killed by the communists and he ended up being the first player to legally be drafted into the NHL after the revolution in 1990. Oh. And then he played till he's 45. So th th there's this whole anthology of, of history. And what I got to do is I got to, I started by interviewing the three sharks, Czech players. They have three guys that are Czech on the team. Mm -hmm. And then one, you know, we sat down and we just talked in Czech for an hour, an hour and a half about all this and kind of combined it all. And then I was like, this is, I have way, this is way too good. So as other Czech NHL players came through San Jose for road games, I would sit down with all of them. I ended up turning around like a 4,000 word piece on what, just the legacy of, uh, you, you know, hockey in the Czech Republic and what it means to the guys in the NHL today now that they're in a free country and they could come to America freely. And it was, it was kind of like what I was saying with the San Quentin piece. I was able to take something from sports and show something historical and, and, and how it, uh, you know, really integrated with larger themes in the world. And, and that was really rewarding for me. Yeah, and I, myself, and a bunch of my teammates have had the opportunity to go to San Quentin as part of a volunteer program uh, that they have over there and talk to a lot of those guys and see what it's like um, over there. And, you know, finding the humanity in all of it um, is something that you don't necessarily expect to be able to do, right? These guys are in a prison because, you know, they, they haven't done stuff that's, you know, societally acceptable. And by the end of the, the trip, you have one of our coaches standing up there saying, I didn't expect to be able to say this when I came in here today, but some of these guys are role models for, you know, they've made mistakes, but like the way they, they're able to own up to it um, and, and essentially learn from it uh, and change who they are as people um, is, is pretty remarkable. But and to find the humanity in that, uh, in this case, through sports, uh, and the same thing with the Czech Republic, finding the humanity in the oppression through sport, is what I think makes a lot of the stories I've read on the athletic uh, so special. And also just, you know, the best stories I've read or watched in terms of documentary, have all had that connecting factor. And I think that's really cool that, you know, every other piece that isn't just a uh, strictly covering the outcome of a game or a pregame stuff that, that comes out from you guys um, is just so in-depth and, and so interesting. Yeah, and it's all because we have the freedom and the time to do that. You're not bogged down by these draconian deadlines uh, and, and, and word counts and word limits. You know, At ESPN, it was always like, okay, no more than 800 words, and we, we need it 30 minutes after this and that, and then, okay, then now we have a sponsored post, and you have to give players helmet stickers or whatever the hell that meant. You know, it was one of those it, it, every day, power rankings on Tuesday, and then game preview this day. And uh, like I said, uh, computers can, can write most of that stuff. Computers can probably calculate power rankings better than humans now with all the advanced numbers, which I think are fascinating too. But I wasn't even able to write about them there because I didn't, it just didn't have the, the, the freedom to, to do that. 
Now I do. So what's, what's the process then of, you know, everything was very structured at ESPN, like you're saying, and now you have a lot of freedom. Do you literally just get to write whatever you want or you go, hey, I have an idea. You go to this person with the idea and you get the okay. Yeah, I almost always get the okay. Now I have, I should add that I'm in a, I'm also in a role that is probably more conducive to creativity. My first year in 2017, I was the 49ers beat writer, like just standard beat writer, which meant yeah, we were still young then as a company. So we didn't, we were trying to feel, get a feel for what to do. But still, I, I was more responsible for the day to day injuries and everything because we still wanted to have the daily coverage. After that, though, I've been able to move to this more of a feature writing role to where, especially when the 49ers are good right now, I'm still there all the time. But I'm not like beholden to, you know, oh, George Kittle's knee hurts today and oh, I have to write a whole piece on that. You know, yeah. I, I, I get to I don't have to, you know, I don't even have to sit in the press conference while Jimmy Garoppolo is speaking at the podium to everybody. I could already be in the locker room trying to get guys for one on one and and you know really finding an angle like so yesterday i wrote is the whole piece on with talking to the 49ers linebackers and d linemen on the little intricacies of how they're going to defend screen passes because they struggled last week and russell wilson is going to run a lot and they're going to do all kinds of that stuff against their pass rush this week so i'm I'm able to kind of go off the beaten path and i'm encouraged to so when i propose the idea it's usually approved unless i come up with something really stupid but uh, so far so good yeah, that, that's that's really cool stuff. Also, because I've seen this year, especially, um, there's been like more of. So I feel like football as a sport's probably got one of the biggest disconnects between. Like they've got a ton of fans, but fans don't actually know about the intricacies of offense or defense and blocking schemes, route concepts, you know, coverages like. It's really complicated stuff, and I don't think, personally, I don't think the average NFL yeah. fan, college football fan, knows all that much about that stuff. You know, scream at the TV or the game for whatever they think should be going on, but don't don't really have the po- proper knowledge base. And I think um, I've seen some, like this year especially, starting to bridge the gap um, between fans understanding scheme um, and what the players are trying to do. Uh, I remember there was a clip on Twitter that went viral. It was like, they, they captioned it like Deshaun Watson owns a journalist. And like, all he does is like, he's clearly irritated because they lost the game. But he's just really in depth explaining coverage about why he didn't make a certain decision. And it's all a bunch of comments like, this is what we love as journalists. Like, even though his tone might be angry, it's like, deconstructing the game to a level that that fans might understand a little bit better. And, and that's why it's awesome covering Shanahan. Most coaches will not go into the X's and O's. You could ask him anything, and he just sits there and talks for five minutes about this play and that. And There was almost a concern when he first joined the 49ers that, uh, you know, maybe this guy should keep stuff a little bit closer to the vest. Uh, you know, maybe other teams are – Maybe he's given away too many secrets, but I think that's just you know part of the reason for the disconnect. It's it's also football's fault, right? Oh yeah. Because because coaches have been so paranoid for decades in football, more than any other sport. There's been this level of paranoia and secrecy, and oh, we can't let them know anything. And for sometimes for good reason, right? Because it's sometimes, especially in a game like football, if you you know let somebody know that 
this guy's left elbows hurt, he could get targeted for for, for that. I mean, it, it's happened before. Or, you know, from the X's and O's standpoint, it, there's just that culture of we better keep everything right. close to the vest. But I think with a lot of these younger, new age coaches, you're seeing it with McVeigh, who's not afraid to talk about scheme, seeing it with Shanahan. I think these guys are kind of, they're realizing, you know, the, the other coaches are not going to beat me through what I say to, to the media. I'm, there, I'm never going to be able to say what in depth to the level of what's going on in the film room, which nobody sees anyway. I think they take a much more reasonable approach to it. Sure. And that helps bridge the gap, right? When the coach is free, freely talking about stuff, then, then his players will be more free talking about stuff. Then everybody will actually learn football, and it's better for the sport that way. Because yeah. then we have all this great all these great clips to break down on Twitter. And the other thing I think that's that's almost kind of funny about it is I mean, at the level that they're describing stuff to starting to describe stuff to journalists and in press conferences and whatnot, that's like the level you know, everyone already does the same thing at that level, you know, like all the schemes from team to team at the level that they're explaining are it's the same kind of screenplay or it's the yeah. same kind of zone run or, or route concept. It's They're just not like, pulling up that video right. and being, oh, I found something out about right. the Niners. It's not, <laughs> it's, it's not the little intricacies. That what they're not giving you are the little intricacies of, you know, specifically where they want the guy to line up or where his eyes are supposed to be. That And that's where I think it's different from team to team and coach to coach is like the small details within these schemes. But on the surface level, you know, it's, it's all sort of the same stuff. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, that that's and that's why it made no sense, and I think that's why these younger guys have have changed now because they realized it made no sense to guard everything like it was the nuclear football. You know, like it, you, yeah. you 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 have to it, at, at a certain level too. It's now you have we talk about social media and people are able to break down film on their own and do all these things. So. You know, it almost makes sense for, for a coach, too. You don't want the wrong message getting out there. You can control the message a little bit as well by giving your explanation instead of letting, you know, all these people who think they're experts make a lot of wrong assumptions about the film. Right. Because it's, it's no longer – that's this goes back to the whole ESPN thing. It's no longer I have to watch all my football and all my analysis by turning on ESPN. I mean, no, now you have choices. You could follow one of – 5,000 different people on Twitter who are trying to analyze football. Um, so uh, it, 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 the, the, the content and the message is not only coming through one channel. It's coming through a lot of channels now. And thankfully, maybe that's been one of the drivers to get the actual teams to be a little bit more open about things too. You and I spoke briefly uh, a couple of times we spoke before this about uh, some of the other passions you have as well outside of the sports journalism world and I know that you were talking about you love exploring all the food in the Bay Area uh, being up here because we have so many great options. Uh, why don't you drop real quick your favorite thing that you eat regularly, either in the city or just around the Bay? What's the, what's the one spot Bay Area listeners need to go try? The best burrito in the world is Taqueria Cancun. 19th and Mission. Where, where are you from originally? I'm from Marin. So oh, okay, from, good. Yeah. So you so you know that the burritos here are, are, the, are mission, the best. The Mission-style burritos are, uh, uh, you know, you always see all these feuds on social media about Mexican food in Southern California versus Northern California. It's, admit, they probably got us beat in most parts, but 
the burritos in the mission are, are something else. Yeah. No, I, and, and I'll give the tacos to, to elsewhere. I would actually argue Fresno's got awesome tacos. But that's a different debate. <laughs> but, but, but the burritos and the history is fascinating to me. That, that kind of combines all the things I'm, I'm interested in, except for sports, outside of sports. But, you know, you know burritos aren't Mexican. They're Mexican-American. The, the, bur- the, the burrito as we know it, right? In, in, in Mexico, the, it's a, you order a burrito and, and you think you're getting something totally different. It's much, much smaller. Burrito actually means small donkey burrow would be big donkey so so what the story of the burritos is that in in the 60s when there was a mass migration of mexican people to california a lot of them came to the central valley to work on the fields and they needed to devise a, a new food offering that didn't require knives and forks that would feed workers without having to go back to the farmhouse, you know, if they went, went out to this field. So they invented a gigantic tortilla, filled it up with all the ingredients, and they called it a super burrito. Now, the closest city to this, to the Central Valley, was obviously San Francisco. So, you know, the Mission District, which was once, it's fascinating to me, was once, in, once an Irish Catholic neighborhood, huh. uh, became, when, when the migration moved to the city, it became a largely Hispanic and Mexican neighborhood. So uh, all the taquerias that popped up started serving what they had served, you know, in the central Valley, this new super burrito in the assembly line. And it's now the most prevalent, um, style of burrito in the world. The, 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 the mission style super burrito is, is what, you know, has got its own Wikipedia page. You can go read about the history. It's, it's fascinating stuff. And, and to settle the debate, I thought that ESPN actually, it, it was 538. I think they're, they were either owned or they still are owned by um yeah i think espn owns 538 right or or one of the other it's a yeah but but they they, it's the statistical website with nate silver and all those guys so they they did um a burrito bracket about three or four years ago like a college basketball tournament burrito (laughs) bracket you know and they they were able to get like 64 nominees from around the nation and the burritos all played each other (laughs) and Three of the final four were mission style taquerias. One, the one that won was the whole thing was La Taqueria on 25th and Mission in yep. San Francisco. A classic. Yeah, that one's classic. Um, then El Farolito, which is another a block up. Yeah, and that one is open till 4 a.m. Well, or whatever. So they're all a block from each other. Yeah. Walk. And then and you just go up to Cancun, which was also in the final four. Then there's some random place from like Alabama or something on there. I don't know. <laughs> that that one lost immediately. So it was. It, it, Cancun, unfortunately, did not. I think it made it to the title to the title game, but it lost. But I still I like it the best. So that that's where you got to go. All right. Um, the last thing I have for you, David, is the final three. So it's the three questions that I ask everybody that comes onto this show. Um, so the first thing I want to ask you is, what is one thing you've read, watched, or listened to lately that inspired you and you think people should check out? I, I I like all the the, the football life, uh, the NFL films. Yeah, right? NFL Network. Or yeah, a, a NFL Network, NFL films. I guess it's all one and the same. But they, uh, you, you, there's something about football that I just love that I find really inspirational. I think that's why I've been drawn to it, even though I was never able to play. Um, the, you know, it's organized chaos, right? You were yeah. talking about it on the field. Maybe that's why, and, and that's a huge reason why there's been that disconnect between fans and, and, and players as far as understanding scheme, because there's so much going on, but it's also, it also takes to play the game at a high level, as you know, or to play the game at all takes a remarkable amount of courage 
and a, almost a different kind of mentality to, to be able to step up that step out there and you know, put your life on the line. And in, in a lot of situations, these guys are so big and strong. They're moving around and th- th- there's so much dedication that goes into football. So watching, and this is why I love my job, learning about why football players do what they do, how they get to the level that they are is fascinating to me. And I think nothing does it better than that whole football life series um, on NFL films. I mean, the, the really good one is this one on Steve Young, uh, and they recently came out with one on Ronnie Lott, who, who obviously is, uh, is, you know, a pillar of toughness and, and you know, hard-hitting and everything that football is all about. So I love the one on Ronnie Lott that, that recently came out, and uh, that's something that inspires me. You know, football inspires me. I think it's more than a sport if you really look into the intricacies of it. It's really a, a model for how to live your life in a very hard-nosed way. Absolutely. More more time I spend as a football player, the more I realize how sort of applicable it's all, all is and going to be down the line. Um, second question, who or what was your biggest inspiration to figuring out what you're passionate in and acting upon it. Uh, my, my grandfather, uh, he, he, he died when I was 10, but th- this actually circles back to the piece I was able to write. He was from the Czech Republic and he, you know, he lived through f- 40 years of, of communism there and, and, and he never, he never compromised. The whole system was built on compromise and sellout and, and all this. And, and he never did. You know, he was an extremely smart man who spoke 10 languages, actually. He, and so he's a translator and he's a writer. He, he did everything. And, uh, he, but he, he wanted to do a little bit more of that. He wanted to do a little bit. Uh, he wanted to be a chemist. And I mean, he, the, the guy was really smart. But the thing is that the, the authorities came up and, and they approached him because they knew that he spoke all these different languages. And they said... Hey, we can give you a cushy job. We can move. You know, nobody was able to leave the country at the time. He's like, you and your family can go to Paris. You, know, you can be set for life as long as you spy on Czech people who have escaped the country and report back to us. And, and he, each time they asked him, they asked him several times, he said no. He, he, wow. he refused to join the party, refused to do that. And every single time he said no, he was punished in some underhanded way, usually by getting fired from his job, moved to something he didn't want to do. Essentially, you have this brilliant man who lost 40 years his prime in his life, right? Uh, his working prime. Um, I got to know him for about 10 years before he passed away in 1998. And so I was still young, but he taught me so much about the history, made me passionate about history and, and that. And as I got older, even after he passed away, I... I was able to start processing what all that meant to me. And, and I started getting more interested in, about the history that he lived through. And that taught me and embedded me to, to seize the opportunity that I have here in America. Because he didn't have that same opportunity. And I think it'd be a disservice to my family, a disservice to him, you know, a disservice to the people who came before me who had a tougher go of it, to not seize my passions here. Because if he didn't have a chance to seize his passion, then I could, you know, at least in a way, and I think that, that, that this would make him smile, this would make him happy, and I think it does, you know, in a different world. I, I think that he, I have to seize mine. And, you know, I, I never had to be directed to my passion. I knew that I wanted to cover sports, like I told you from yeah. a young age, but 
I had to be encouraged to seize it, right? So I knew what my passion was, but a lot of people let their passion just go by and they end up doing something they don't, they don't love. And, and that whole experience with my grandfather and then combining it with studying the history allowed me to have the, the drive to seize that passion. And, and, you know, if we want to wrap everything full circle, that's why writing that story on, on the Czech hockey players and that yeah. history meant so much to me in case, you know, that wasn't clear before. <laughs> that was the link because it was personal for me, that one right there. Yeah, that's amazing. Uh, I, you know, I think it's always important to see, see and recognize the ways in which we personally are lucky and, and fortunate and, you know, the whole thing about just seizing the opportunities that you have uh, personally really resonates with me because I feel a similar way about a lot of the positions that I've been lucky enough to be put in. Um, and that's honestly one of the reasons that this podcast exists. Um, so the last question I have for you is, what right now is your current goal? Well, I, I got the short term and, and the long term goals, you know, um, my current goal right right now, I'm about to drive down to the 49ers facility. I got, and I got an exciting piece I'm working on. I'm, I'm going to sit down with Richard Sherman, who just grabbed his 35th career interception. So I've listed all 35 career interceptions of his with the quarterback and the receiver targeted on the play. And, and, and um, we're going to see how many he remembers. And I suspect he's going to remember all 35 of them just because I know Richard Sherman. And, and I think it's going to make a, a fun piece. So my current goal is today. I want to do as good of a job as possible on, on that piece. And I think it's so important to be process oriented like that in life and not outcome oriented. Cause you could set all these great long-term goals, but if you don't have a plan, if you don't, you, if you don't have the short-term ones, which is the plan to get to the long-term ones, you're never going to get there. They're going to seem overwhelming. So my short-term goal is to win today, you know, kick ass on that piece, do as well as I can. And my long-term goal, you know, I, I want to I call the Super Bowl one day. I do a lot of writing now, but I want to do more play-by-play. -play. I want to call the biggest sporting events in the world. You know, that's great. Uh, that's the, but a lot of people probably say that, you know. But I actually want to do that. But I realize to get there, I have to put in the grind today. And hopefully, you know, brick by brick, you, you build something beautiful at the end. Awesome. Well, looking forward to hearing your voice one day <laughs> when I'm watching the Super Bowl. Maybe um, you'll be playing in it. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> Hopefully. We'll see. Um, so, uh, very last thing before I let you get out of here, get down to Santa Clara. Um, if anyone wants to find your pieces or see more of your content, what's the best way for them to do that? Uh, just go out to Twitter, Lombardi himself. Pretty easy. Right. <laughs> on Twitter or Instagram. I, I'm the same handle on both of them, and, and I post everything on, on both. So, um, yeah, and... Sign up for a free trial through one of my pieces. I'll get credit for it. <laughs> All right. Thanks, David. I love talking to David. Every interaction I've had with him has been absolutely amazing and a pleasure. Um, so thank him so much for, for coming on here and sharing his knowledge like that. Well, that is the end of my first installment of so stignatious i can't thank you guys enough for everybody that's listened along the way um and supported via an itunes rating or whatever it may be a recommendation to a friend whatever thank you so much thank you for listening i learned so much from every guest on this show and i also learned 
so much about making a podcast. This was something that was completely new to me and I kind of just jumped right into. Um, I'm excited to take everything that I've learned and uh, apply it to some more projects coming up. Um, So Ignatius is going to take a little bit of a seat on the back burner for me as I'm working on some other passion projects that I think you guys are really, really going to enjoy if you enjoyed this. So I'm taking everything I learned and I'm staying stignatious and jumping full speed ahead into um, some other projects that hopefully I'll be able to share with you guys pretty soon. Um, Thank you for listening to this episode. Thank you for listening to the whole series. Still, please leave uh, a rating or a comment if you'd like and stay stigmatious.